so Raj is going to come and read to us 1 Corinthians chapter 4. So our reading is 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Um, this then is how you ought to regard us, as servants of Christ and those entrusted with the mysteries God has revealed. Now it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. I care very little if I am judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. <clears throat> My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in the darkness and will expose the motives of the, the heart. At that time, each will receive their praise from God. Now, brothers and sisters, I've applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, do not go beyond what is written. Then you will not be puffed up in being a follower of one of, the, of us over against other. For who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? Already you will have all you want. Already you will become rich. You have begun to reign, and that without us. How I wish that you really had begun to reign so that we also might reign with you. For it, it seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession, like those condemned to die in the arena. We have been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well as to human beings. We are fools for Christ, but you are so wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are honoured, we are dishonoured. To this very hour we go hungry and thirsty. We are in rags, we are brutally treated, we are homeless. We work hard with our own hands. When we are cursed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. When we have become the scum of the earth, the garbage of the world, right up to this moment. I am writing this not to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children. Even you, if you had 10,000 guardians in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I have become your father through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you to imitate me. For this reason, I have sent you Timothy, my son, whom I love who is faithful in the Lord. He will remind you of my way of life in Christ Jesus, which agrees with that I teach everywhere in every church. Some of you have become arrogant, as if I were not coming to you, but I will come to you very soon, if the Lord is willing, and then I will find out not only how those arrogant people are talking, but what power they have. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. What do you prefer? Shall I come to you with the rod of discipline, or shall I come to you with the gentle spirit? That be the word of the Lord. At the beginning of uh, chapter 4 in 1 Corinthians, Paul describes himself as a servant. Um, <clears throat> the word there actually has some more connotations of a manager, actually, and we're going to talk about that a bit in a minute. <clears throat> but one of the jobs of a manager is doing staff appraisals. I don't know if any of you have been 
um, subjected to or enjoyed or been the victim of uh, a staff appraisal recently. Um, and in a way, maybe we can read this letter to the church in Corinthians as their mid-year appraisal, the sort of the appraisal letter from their absent uh, manager. He sets the tone relatively gently. Um, but in this chapter, it feels a bit like he's finally warmed up to the telling off that he had in store for them all along. Um, some of you might be familiar with the sort of bad news sandwich approach to annual appraisals, where you say something nice and encouraging at the beginning, and then you say the real problem in the middle, and then you finish off with a nice bit at the end. And so I think we've kind of finally arrived at the meat in the middle of the bad news sandwich. So the first chapter that we read in Corinthians was mostly an encouragement and an exhortation to base our identities on Christ. Pretty good, pretty encouraging. The second chapter was all about how to live by the Spirit, which is a little bit challenging, but still very encouraging. Uh, and the third chapter is addressed to the church and his leaders, pointing to Christ as the unifying head of all who follow Christ and warning about um, boasting about the leaders. So, so I think they could kind of get their heads around that. So this fourth chapter continues this theme of identity, uh, but it starts to address some quite tricky questions about how believers should live. Um, and it contains a fair number of warnings and challenges to the church in Corinth that may be the church in Brighton Road could consider as well. So this is something I've been thinking a lot about this week. How then do we live? Um, we've got this idea that maybe we should be different, but how different are we and in what ways should we be different? And, and I think when we get our heads around this passage, that's sort of what it's trying to teach us. So I've broken it down into three elements, and I think each element contains a message and a challenge. And, and so my kind of words, my three words, my three sections that we're going to go through together, the first is treasure, the second is hunger, and the third is power. So treasure, hunger, and power. So first of all, treasure. We've heard uh, a story about disappointing treasure this morning. We've heard a story about buried treasure. And I want us just to, to think about this word a little bit more. So the very first verse in uh, chapter 4 of 1 Corinthians, this then is how you should regard us. And the us there is the apostles, so specifically Paul and Sosenthes, I think. I don't know if that's how you say it, the guys that wrote this um, letter. Uh, but Paul has also been talking about Apollos. So this is how you should regard us as servants of Christ. And as I've already hinted at, there's, there's various examples of uh, the gospel using this word servants. And it translates more as um, kind of a household manager, really. Another version puts it like this. This is how we should be thought of as servants of the Messiah, as household managers. So the word translated as servant carries with it a sense of responsibility, of trust. It's a role performed by somebody that's been left behind while their master is away, trusted to administer a large estate. <clears throat> These are the kind of people that would hold budgets. They would command resources. They may even manage other staff. And Jesus, you may remember, told parables about these managers, and we, we heard one of them this morning. 
And we understand these parables to describe how Jesus wants his disciples to wait for his return. So Luke 12, be dressed and ready for service. Keep your lamps burning like servants waiting for their master to return from a wedding banquet so that when he comes and knocks, you can be immediately ready to open the door. Now, management is a big responsibility. It's not just about annual appraisals. There's quite a lot more to it as well. Um, In my day job, one of the things I do is I run training courses for people who are going to be managers for the first time. And I'm always really impressed when people come onto that course and we talk about why are you there and what do you want to learn. They have this real sense that managing somebody is such an important thing to do. They come kind of eager to understand how to do it well, a little bit nervous, maybe, that they're not going to manage it. But they recognise that it's a really important task that needs to be done properly. One of the things that I I also do in my day job is I run team development-type workshops. And one of the things that I've done recently with the team, it it generally involves lots of post-it notes, my my work. Uh, And one of the things we've done recently is work with a team, and they've identified all the different tasks that they have to do. They've written them all out on post-it notes. I ask them to think about what are their assets, what are their opportunities. We write that all on post-it notes. And we think about the people, who have they got, who are the resources, what are the sort of tasks that people are best fitted for. And we normally end up with kind of a big glass wall or a big wall covered with different coloured post-it notes in different categories. And I'm sorry that I missed the vision day yesterday. I think some of that kind of activity may well have been going on yesterday. And we've been thinking as part of our vision day about the tasks set before us, about the assets that we have, about the opportunities that we have, and also about the people in our church who we have, who are our resources. But I wonder, do we realise that each of these items on our metaphorical or actual post-it notes represent God's treasure? Are we careful enough about how we handle and notice and count them? I wonder if there's a challenge here about how we put to use the treasure that God entrusts us with. And even what we notice as the treasure that God gives us. I think our riches, our resources, our time, our gifts, our skills, our opportunities, everything that we have are not just gifts for our benefit, but they're God's treasure that he has entrusted with us. And further, it goes on in the verse describes the responsibility of that servant, of that manager, as being those entrusted with the mysteries that God has revealed. So it's not even about our stuff. It's about the mysteries that God has revealed to us and how we live lives changed by that revelation and how we live lives that multiply the treasure that we've been given. We read as well further on in that chapter, what is required of these managers those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. Another version says, what follows the main requirement for a manager is to be trustworthy. And it's not enough, we heard in a parable this morning, it's not enough to keep what's been given to us safe. It's not enough to wrap it in a handkerchief or bury it somewhere safe. God expects his managers to grow the investment that he's entrusted them with. 
So there might be a personal challenge for us here to think about um, the treasure that God's given to us and what we need to do with it. But in the context of this letter, actually, what Paul is saying is he's setting out the role of manager, which he considers to be his job in regards to the church in Corinth. And he sets this out by way of explanation for the apparently harsh words that are going to follow to the church in Corinth. It's because he takes his role as manager so seriously, managing God's resources so seriously, he's willing to risk being unpopular by speaking against the way that some of them are living. He makes it clear that he doesn't fear, he doesn't even care about the human judgment. He takes so seriously the role of steward of God's resources, of a manager for the mystery of God, that he speaks the way he does because it's only God's judgment that he is waiting for. The words, judge nothing before the appointed time, wait until the Lord comes. In that NIV translation, it seems quite tame, almost like a gentle fact. But the sense in the original is much more emphatic. It carries a sense of stop judging. It feels like a very strict instruction. So the implication is that judging is very much a thing that's going on in the Corinthian church. um, And that Paul is telling them very firmly to stop We know from the previous chapter that Paul's leadership has been compared to Apollos and that this was causing disagreement amongst the congregation. So perhaps what he's saying here is is that they need to stop that. They need to stop judging um, one leader against another. He spoke about that already in chapter 3. Or perhaps it's a more particular criticism of the arrogant superiority complex that some of the Corinthians suffered from. And we'll hear more about that in a minute. Paul warns that only God knows the motives of the heart and that there is a time coming when all that is currently clothed in darkness will be exposed to the light. And I think we need to hear this as a twofold warning. One, that we shouldn't judge others. And two, we better be ready for our own deep motives to be exposed. We found ourselves very early for school one morning uh, this week, uh, and Miriam and I were walking around the church at St. Mary's. I don't know how many of you have done that. And there's the um, Bible verses um, in the stones around St. Mary's Church. It's a really beautiful thing, actually. And so we, we killed 10 minutes of our earliness by walking all the way around the church and reading all the Bible verses. And I was struck again, one of them, where your treasure is, there is your heart. So then we had the inevitable discussion where we tried to explain, what on earth does that mean? And I think that when our hearts are exposed, when our motives are exposed, then all the things that we've stored up in our hearts, all the things that we treasure, suddenly will become very obvious. And if our treasure is God, if our treasure is eternal, useful, glorious things, then that is what will be exposed. That was a little about treasure. Let's think about hunger. If you look in the passage from verse 8 onwards, this is where Paul really does start to lay into the members of the church in Corinth. He attacks those who are puffed up and he rails against their sense of security. Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich and you have begun to reign. 
The implication seems to be that as a false sense of security, even superiority seems to stem from their uh, status as believers. He says to them, some of you have become arrogant. He compares the lifestyle of the Corinthian Christians with his own life as an apostle, one where he knows no riches, only rags, imprisonment and abuse, a life in many ways very similar to that of Christ. In this chapter, the Corinthians, and we with them, are invited to notice how little our lives resemble that of Paul, and by extension, that of Christ. It's quite personally challenging. I've certainly never spent a night on the streets, or been in prison. I've never experienced the pain of hunger brought on because I simply can't afford food. I've never had to struggle to feed my own children. My clothes might not be top-notch designer brands, but they're hardly rags. And although I've had people be mean to me along the way, I couldn't say I've ever experienced anything that I could describe as persecution. So it's been quite a challenge to me thinking about what is the challenge to us here? Are we being called to give up our middle-class, comfortable existence, live nomadic lives on the edge of society at odds with the political regime? Jesus did say that we should sell all our possessions and give the proceeds to the poor. Is that God's call to us this morning? I don't discount that. And if God is calling you to that, then hear the call and be obedient. But I'm not sure that it applies like that for the majority of us. And I'm not really sure that that was the response that Paul wanted from the church in Corinth either. I'm sure there is a challenge for us. I'm sure many of us could live much more frugal and generous lives. But I think there is also a more subtle challenge here. It's not just about what's on the outside. This passage, after all, is all about hearts and motives and hidden things. Jesus' words in Matthew 5, verse 6, give us the key. He says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. I think the real problem here is that the Corinthians have everything they want. They feel satisfied. You've become rich and you've become kings. The Corinthians feel themselves secure and in want of nothing. And here they are in agreement with the Stoic teachers of the time who advocated complete emotional self-sufficiency, who believed that to be happy you only needed to rely on that which is already your own. This in turn leads to considering yourself as the only viable source of strength and provision. It's more than selfishness. It's a form of idolatry uh, and a humanism that pervades our society today. We see that God, where he is thought of at all, is relegated to second place. He's an optional add-on rather than a core necessity or a central reality. I think the church in Corinth, maybe like our own society, see weakness, hunger, need as signs of failure. However, being weak, being hungry, being in need, being cursed in this life, that's a life that Paul models and the life that Jesus models. So what does this mean for us? I think the call for us this morning is that we shouldn't fall for the lie. We are not self-sufficient. We can never be satisfied with the fruits of our own labours or with the things that we've created with our own hands. We can never be satisfied apart from the complete revelation of the glory of God. We sang this morning, I will not boast in anything. 
but I will boast in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. I haven't heard it for a while, but in the sort of evangelism models, the God-shaped whole theory was a very strong idea for a long time. This idea that human hearts cry, there must be more. And the lie is that the more that will satisfy is things that we can create ourselves. But we know the truth, that when our hearts cry, surely there must be more. We know there is more, but we know that that's got to come from God. So we hunger for more of God. And in the way of God's kingdom is that upside-down kingdom. We know it's only as we are hungry that we can be properly satisfied. And here the two lessons come together. Many people who appear self-sufficient on the outside are often broken on the inside. We shouldn't judge them or guess what's inside their hearts. We certainly shouldn't aspire to be like them. Instead, let's adopt a posture of submission and aspire to be those who are satisfied only with what God provides for us and only content when we're doing the work that God has commissioned us to do. In an upside-down kingdom, we can only truly be satisfied when we remain hungry for the things of God. We want more, and we come expectantly to his table, and we need to stay hungry for his presence, for his glory, and for his power. So finally then, power. Treasure, hunger, and power. We read, the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. And again, God's kingdom turns what we think we know, what we have learnt from the world around us upside down. Because when God talks about power, it's not the kind of power that we're used to. It's something much bigger and deeper. Paul warns us not to be seduced by arrogant people with fine clothes and clever talk. His words to the Corinthians can be read either as a warning or as an encouragement. The kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. Tom Wright, in his commentary, says this about Paul. Nobody in Corinth or any of the other towns outside Palestine had ever witnessed somebody giving of himself generously, living a life of self-sacrifice and refusing to play the power games and the prestige games that were the stock in trade of the local rulers, the magistrates and civic dignitaries. Paul was different and the difference mattered because he was modelling the Christ life. Paul's only authority was that of someone who was living and preaching the gospel of Jesus and acting out the commission which Jesus had given him. He didn't need to say much. He left that to the puffed-up people. His uniform, the life he was living, which urged them to copy, was said all that was necessary. Is there a challenge for us here? If our life is the uniform that we wear, what does it say about us? Do we maybe need to say less and let God do more? And I realise that's a tricky thing to convey in a sermon. What would our lives look like? What would our church look like? What would our families and our communities look like if we had less words and more of God's power? I know that as Christians we are called to live distinct, separate, set-apart lives. And like I said, I struggle with this. I do my best to live how God wants me to, But often I look at the way I live and the way the world lives and I can't really see the differences. But I think here's the clue. I think this passage does present us with two distinct ways of living because it's about an attitude and a mindset and a belief system that makes us fundamentally different at our core than those around us. It's about the treasure, the hunger and the power. 
where a world continues to chase after treasure that can be measured in pound signs, in houses, in cars, and in holidays, in wealth that can be accumulated and counted and clung to. God calls us to chase after treasures of the gospel, to give up worldly goods where they trap us and distract us from this calling, to use all we have in generous service of his purposes. God calls us to remember that none of our stuff is really ours anyway, and so we should manage our resources knowing they are God's treasures. Where the world offers us fast food, satisfaction guaranteed, our society is enslaved to instant gratification. If you want something, it can be yours with credit on demand. You never need wait or earn. Our society has become disposable and replaceable. Things that are broken and sometimes people that are broken and relationships that are broken have no value. But our God calls us to be hungry for the things of the future. He wants us to know the freedom of reliance, of humility and weakness. He wants us to model our lives where he wants our lives to model that hope and potential are worth something. And our belief in restoration and healing should inspire us to invest in situations that currently seem broken. And finally, when our world says power is something to be grasped and clung to, where power often results in abuse, where power often leaves victims. But when God moves in power, he brings healing, forgiveness, restoration and justice. So in the question, how then shall we live? Romans 12, verse 2 in the New Living Translation says this, Don't copy the behaviours and customs of the world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn how to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. Can we pray? Lord God, we are amazed by how you entrust us with your most precious mysteries. Teach us how to deal with your treasure in the way that you want us to. Open our eyes to the possibilities around us. Don't let us squander a single coin of opportunity for sharing the good news of Jesus. Lord, forgive us for feeling satisfied. Forgive our self-sufficiency. We want to hunger and thirst for your righteousness. We long for your glory and hunger for your presence. Lord, remind us that we can never be satisfied apart from you. Give us a posture of submission and increase our dependency on you. For yours is the kingdom, the power and the glory. It is not about us or our words, it's all about you. Lord, apart from you, we are nothing. But with your spirit living inside us, we have available to us the same power that raised Jesus from the grave. Would you move in spirit and power in this place, in this church, in these lives? Come in power that our community would be transformed by an encounter with Jesus.